Matthew chapter 6. We want to remember that our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon, and we love them so much. Give them some love, Ventura. Matthew chapter 6, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The title of this message is The Problem with Treasure. And no, the problem is not that you don't have enough. The problem with treasure, it's a different problem. Uh, I don't know about you, but the, the Sermon on the Mount has been incredibly challenging for me, not as a preacher, as a listener, not as a teacher, as a student, not as a leader, as a follower of Jesus. It's been really challenging. I mean, Jesus is really like, touching deep places of who we are and our sinful proclivities. Uh, So it's been good, some good times of examination. And uh, today, Jesus is going to touch on the issue of money. So let's read what he has to say about it in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Our Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of having before us your word, your wonderful word, which is infallible and inerrant, authoritative, true and living and active. Thank you for the privilege of opening it up and hearing from you. Help us, Lord, this morning to open up our lives as we hear from you. Even as our Bibles are open on our lap, that our hearts would be open before you and you would speak to us, God. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. You love us enough to speak to us about things like our money and how it intersects with our heart. Thank you for your great love. In your love, will you speak clearly to us today? We ask together that you would please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to Jesus and helpful for the church. We ask together that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would want to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Jesus here brings up the topic of money. And you know, it's interesting, I find that we don't really, as people, even as Christians, like to talk about money too much, at least not in the specifics of it, at least not as it pertains to our money. You know what I mean? Generally, we like to, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty, like our money and what we do with it, we don't like to talk about that too much. I find that we're, we're more quick to talk about our sex lives than our bank accounts. Like I get in small groups with men and they're like ready to open up about their sexuality and their struggles and all these things. But then we say, well, let's talk about our money. Mm. Seems like it's like the taboo issue. I mean, I mean, imagine. 
Imagine if I came up to you and said, hey, how much do you make? You're like, what? Don't, you don't ask that. <laughs> how much do you have in your bank account? Oh, really? Is that checking or savings? <laughs> hey, can I look at your check registry? Can I see your credit card statement? What is this expense right here? What is the most expensive thing you've bought lately? How much money have you given away lately? What, what if I ask you those questions? You'd be like, dude, stop. It'd be like, I'm some sort of freaky cult leader. I mean, that really is like taboo. And so interestingly enough, the Bible, though we don't like to talk about it, has a ton to say about money. 16 of Jesus's 38 parables that he gives in the gospels are about money. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament have to do with money. In the Bible, there are about 500 verses on the topic of prayer. Prayer is kind of a big deal. There's less than 500 verses on the topic of faith. There are over 2,000 verses that have to do with money. Isn't that interesting? Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, obviously, it's because, because God loves money and is super into it and wants all of yours. No, that's probably not it, is it? Probably has something to do with the fact that we love money and are super into it and want it all. And God loves us. But we often love money sometimes, sometimes, more than we love God. And so because he loves us, God goes after this topic of money as it pertains to and connects with our hearts. God goes after it like he goes after any other idol. Any other idol. Let me tell you what sits behind this text as a theological backdrop. Let me give you the theological underpinnings of this text. It goes all the way back to God giving the law in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, God says this. I am the Lord, your God. Okay. I am the Lord, your God. One God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. Way back then, God said, I am the only God. That's a basic tenet of our faith, that there is one true God. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the ancient mantra of Judaism that we have inherited in our monotheism. There is one God. And he says, I am that God. I am the one who also delivered you from slavery. Therefore, because I'm the one who, true God, who saved you, don't have other gods. Don't let anything become an idol that you begin to serve in any way. Now, what do we mean by idol? What does God mean by idol? We could take sort of a a broad stroke with it and say this. An idol is any lesser thing, lesser than God. An idol is any lesser thing that we make an ultimate thing. 
An idol is any small thing that we ascribe too much importance to. An idol is any lesser thing that we make an ultimate thing. And what God does with idols throughout the Bible, we see this front to back, is that he goes after them. Throughout the Old Testament, God is confronting idols. He's naming idols. He's calling them out. He's using his people to deal with the idols in the land. He's dealing with the idols in his people through chastening and judgment. God goes after idols. Why does he go after idols? Well, because these lesser things that we have a tendency to give ourselves to can never deliver ultimately. We will ultimately be disappointed if we pursue lesser things too much because they, all lesser things, by God's design, never satisfy, nor can they. By God's design, humanity can only ever be truly satisfied by God himself. And the lesser things in which we try to find satisfaction are designed by God not to give us such. But in our darkness, we continue to grope after them and pursue them, thinking if we just got a little bit more, that somehow there we would find our satisfaction and our happiness. And because they never satisfy and they cause us to go after them more and more and more hard, they become masters to which we have become enslaved. Always pursuing, never satisfied. That's why in verse 24, Jesus called mammon, that's a word for money, possessions, and wealth, a master. There are two masters. Mammon can be a master. Think about what it was like, the horror, the sheer horror of always trying to appease and pursue and sacrifice to a false God. Just think about the horror of what you know from the Old Testament, the lengths to which you would have to go. Listen, the Bible tells us that those false gods, idols that we have, at the very best, they're they're non-existent. They're nothing. We made them up. But at the very worst, they're demonic powers that lie behind them. And we have seen in the Old Testament the horror of humanity pursuing these things. Think about the prophets of Baal and their confrontation with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And when they were trying to get Baal, this false god, this idol, to respond to them, and they didn't hear from this god, how they began to beat themselves and cut themselves into a bloodied, frenzied mess. At best, he wasn't there. He was a fake. At worst, it was demonically inspired powers marring humanity. I mean, the lengths to which humanity would go to try to hear from and appease and and gain the favor of these gods. We read in the Old Testament that some of those cultures would actually sacrifice their children to these gods. And we read that even Israel would fall into the pursuit of idols and begin to sacrifice at times their own kids. The horror of false worship. In ultimate disappointment and despair, people were driven to ultimate sacrifice. And this is very much the way money and possessions and wealth work in our lives today. We are willing to sacrifice much in the pursuit of the almighty dollar. 
I mean, we could look at those ancient cultures and, and, and in shock and horror that they would ever sacrifice their kids, but how many have neglected their kids in the pursuit of their career and their money? How many neglect their marriage in the pursuit of their career and their money? How many relationships have we neglected? How, how often have we sacrificed our own integrity and principle in the pursuit of money? We, we, we too are open to sacrificing a lot when we start to pursue after idols and false gods. And so Jesus, because of his great love for us, goes after this common idol of money and possessions. And money and stuff are not really the issue. Our heart is the issue. Money and stuff are morally neutral. Our hearts are the issue. The issue is our affections, our passions, our desires. Where we really look for happiness and joy and satisfaction. That's why Jesus says, where your heart is, or excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus is not here telling us to live without passionate pursuits. He's not saying that. And he's also a little bit of good news here for you. He's not telling us that we should not have treasure. Oh, thank you, pastor, because this was going, this was hard. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying that we should live without treasure. Rather, what he is doing in this text is redirecting our passion in a more true way. He's drawing our attention to a better treasure that is available to the believer. He's telling us that in our pursuit, in our passions, in our search for satisfaction and happiness and meaning and joy, that we, humanity, actually aim too low. He's wanting to elevate our aim. He's calling us to aim higher. We settle too easily. He's telling us that there is something better. That's why he'll say at the end of the text next week when we get to it, seek first the kingdom of God. This is from Christ a loving appeal for his followers to look higher, to seek better, to actually expect more, not less. So he says to us in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, That sounds disappointing and mean because I, like you, like treasure. However you want to define it, I like treasure. Whatever it is in your life that's a great value that you enjoy, I like treasure. Let me give you a second piece of good news this morning. All treasure has been made by God. God's the one who makes treasure. There's no treasure that God hasn't made. And God made treasure for us to enjoy. I mean, he really did. God made treasure for us to enjoy. But he did not make treasure for us to treasure. There's the catch. He made all things for us to enjoy. But he did not make them for us to treasure. We're not to treasure them. He says, do not lay up for yourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have savings accounts. That's savings accounts. That's not what Jesus is coming against here. The idea of laying up 
is that which reveals the places and spaces and things in which we find our security, our identity, our meaning. Again, the issue is the heart. And he says, listen, if you find your security, your identity, your meaning, if you're looking for joy and satisfaction in earthly treasures, that he says, moths can eat and rust can destroy and thieves could steal. Don't do that, my beloved daughters and sons. Don't do that. Don't look for meaning, joy, identity, and security and things that moths threaten. That can be easily taken. The decay as time goes by. Treasures on this earth are fleeting. They're fragile. They falter. They're perishable. They're not secure. And if that then, here's the loving warning, if that then is where our heart is in treasures on this earth, then we will end up with a crumbling, broken, ripped off heart. Jesus in his love is looking to save us from that. Jesus is saying, I have something better for you, my beloved. First Peter comes to mind. Look at First Peter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. See that now in juxtaposition to earthly treasures? God's word says to us, there is something the believer who has been brought into the kingdom by faith in Jesus looks forward to that is more than this world could ever supply. A priceless inheritance. It's kept in heaven for you. It's pure, it's undefiled, and it's beyond the reach of change or decay. It's not subject to the things that treasure in this world are. So Jesus is saying to us in the text, if you're going to lay something up, if you're going to identify something with so much importance and value, if it's going to determine your meaning and your happiness and your joy, if it's going to direct the course of your life, if you're going to lay something up, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves threaten it, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasure that lasts. So it begs the question, then what, what, what lasts? What is treasure in heaven and how do we lay it up? Well, let's think about it this way for a moment. Don't think about heaven in this instance so much as a place in the future, though it certainly is want you to think about heaven now as an alternate and present reality. And so it is. Matthew is presenting to us the kingdom of heaven, which came with Jesus, the king of heaven, which has been established by Christ and into which we enter through faith in Christ. And we now become daughters and sons of the king who live in the kingdom. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And there is a certain way within the kingdom. It's present, it's now, we're part of it. It's also future and there, but it's here and it's now and we're part of it. 
And there is a certain way of being in the kingdom. And the way of being in the kingdom is to go the king's way. He's a king. Jesus is the king. It's his kingdom. We're his kids, his subjects, his sons and daughters. So the way of being within the kingdom here and now in this life is to go the king's way. So to lay up treasure in heaven would be to walk in the king's way, do the things of the king that the king is calling us to do. Remember Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. We're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew. We've entered the kingdom through the forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we can do the things which he prepared for us to do long ago. God's purpose for your life, God's plan for your life, the way that you count in the midst of God's kingdom and the midst of his work in the world of saving men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, his work of restoration and renewal and your place and space and role in it. If you're in the kingdom, God has prepared good works for you in advance that you should walk in them. And walking in them is laying hold of that eternal treasure. Earthly things now that have eternal value and significance. The Bible does not shy away from the principle of reward. It is from cover to cover that in glory there will be some reward for God's people who have been faithful with God's calling on their lives. We will, as members of the kingdom, actually one day stand before the king and give an account of how we did or did not walk in the good works that he had prepared for each one of us. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. Speaking about ministry, and he's talking about him and Apollos and Peter, and he says, now, he who plants, okay, the idea of doing the work of God, and he who waters are one. We're all in this work of God together. But each will receive his own reward, 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 according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Remember, it's God's work, not our work. It's God's kingdom, not our kingdom. It's God's ministry, not our ministry. Your life is God's life, not your life. For we are God's fellow workers. Each man's work will become evident. For the day, this is that day where we'll stand before Christ and give an account, will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. Fire is metaphor language in the Bible for some sort of judgment. Pause right there. This is not speaking of judgment for sin. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins according to his finished work on the cross. He took the full penalty for our sins on the cross. Judgment is finished. Jesus says it is finished for those of us who are in Christ. This is an assessing of faithfulness in this lifetime for what God called us to do. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. God has prepared good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. And there is a day of reward, not punishment, but reward 
according to our walking in them. And so one of the ways that we lay up treasure in heaven is by constantly asking the question, God, what do you have for my life? And in what way does my life count in your kingdom? And according to the gifts that you've given me and the talents you've given me and my sphere of influence and the people I know and the spaces and the places that I inhabit, what is it that you're calling me to do? What are the good works that you and your love prepare beforehand that I should walk in them? And there'll be reward for that, laying up treasure in heaven. We spend so much time asking the questions about how do we get treasure on earth? We need to ask the questions about how do we lay up treasure in heaven for this day? Jesus also sets this in the broader context of these spiritual practices that he's been talking about here in Matthew chapter six of generosity. He said, when you give, give in this way. Prayer, he said, when you pray, pray in this way. Forgiveness, you ought to forgive this way. Fasting, when you fast, do thus and so. And so those are ways that we, members of the kingdom, go God's way through practicing generosity, through practicing prayer, through working on forgiveness, by denying the flesh and fasting, so on and so forth. These are ways that we go God's way that cause us to have some richness as it pertains to heaven and the kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes, the reason that we neglect such things, I mean, I neglect such things, prayer and fasting and forgiveness and generosity, oftentimes the reason that we do that is because we have bought into the lie that God is in essence a taker. We think that, well, if I go God's way, and if I go too far, then God is going to take from me whatever you might think it is. But God is not a taker. What does God need from you? He spoke all things into existence. God is a giver. For God so loved the world, he gave. And we have bought into this lie that if I keep going God's way, I'm somehow gonna lose. The truth is, the more that we go God's way in his kingdom, the more that we win. The truth is, we impoverish ourselves when we neglect going God's way in the things and the work of the kingdom. We need to be reminded of Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what that is? Pause right there. That's an invitation to come against this lie that God is a taker and he's not good. That's what that is, an invitation, taste and see. But in the word taste, there's some like, some tangible pursuit there, right? Like if there's a big burrito in front of you and it's just like on the table and you're a few feet away, you're like, you can't like, you can't taste it unless you actually like wrap your hands on it and dive into the thing right after church today. There, there, there's some cognizant, there's some, some effort in tasting. God has invited you, inviting you to go his way in these sorts of things and taste and see whether or not God is good. If he himself doesn't satisfy you and meet those deep places that we've been misplacing in money and possessions and all this stuff. He's inviting you to taste, go his way for a little bit. See if God is good, taste and see. The Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
as opposed to all the other stuff that we take refuge in. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That's the truth. Jesus ultimately satisfies that his love is better than life. That the more we go God's way, the less disappointed we'll be. In his presence is a fullness of joy. So think about that in light of this scripture, which we all know in 1 Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. There it is, right? Treasure, meant to enjoy it, but not to treasure it. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, laying up treasure in heaven, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed real life. Now, here's what we do when we read this. We read, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And we think about that rich guy we know. And we're like, yeah, yeah. It begs the question, who is actually rich? Did you know that one billion people in this world live on less than a dollar a day? Three billion people in this world live on less than $2 a day. You, I, we are rich. By any standard, throughout all of history, we are rich. So this passage is not for the guy who lives on the hill. This passage is for us. We are those who are rich in this present world. And it it would seem from the text that it's actually okay to be rich. But it's not okay to be ungenerous. It's not okay to see riches as finality in this life. It's not okay to be rich in this world and not be rich toward God in the ways that we've been talking about. But money and riches and stuff have a certain deceptive quality to them. The deceitfulness of riches, Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. There's a a deceptive nature to riches and what it does in our hearts. And so Jesus uses this ancient idiom, which is sort of enigmatic. We didn't probably understand it when we read it, to get at this, the deceitfulness of riches. It's there in verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What in the world does that mean? Well, a bad eye, the word there is literally evil. It means moral or spiritual evil. An evil eye, a bad eye, is an ancient way of talking about greed and someone who is greedy. If you said, oh, dude, she's got a bad eye. 
She's greedy, right? That's an ancient way of speaking about that. We see it in Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. We see it here in Proverbs. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth, right? The the desire to accumulate greediness. A man with an evil eye, there's that idiom, that saying, hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. So when Jesus is saying here, back to the text, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. A clear eye or a good eye was a saying for generosity. So if you were said, oh, he's got a bad eye, he had a greedy heart. Oh, he's got a good eye. There's a generous tone and tenor to his life. And the lamp of the body, which is the eye, is this idea. Whichever way your eye takes you, if your tendency is toward generosity or your tendency is toward greed, that is the way in which your whole life, body, it says there, will go. So if your eye, your perception, your way of being tends toward generosity, then the text says your life is full of light. If your eye, your perception, your way of being tends toward greed and selfishness, then your life is full of darkness. And then he says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, if you've been pursuing in this world what you thought was light, all that this world has to offer, but it turns out that it's actually darkness, how deep is that darkness within us? We aim too low. We settle too easily. God is calling us to something more. We thought that in all this stuff that glimmers and glows, that there was a light. And we've been deceived by the deceitfulness of riches. With that in mind, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, different set of verses. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is morally neutral. This is a heart issue again. Jesus is dealing with heart. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This goes back to that ancient idolatry idea. If we make an idol out of wealth and money and possessions and stuff, then there will be all sorts of evil that comes into and out of and through our lives because of that wrong pursuit, the horror of worshiping the lesser thing. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And so some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Isn't that interesting? that somehow our love of money has an adverse effect upon our faith in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what that text is saying. And so in his love, he's warning us about this thing in our heart that wants to treasure treasure instead of just enjoy treasure. That looks for more in treasure than treasure was ever meant to supply. That makes ultimate what is less. He's warning us in love about the detrimental effect that this has on our life with him. Jesus isn't saying that wealth is bad or being rich is bad. He is saying that overvaluing those things 
and greed are bad. To live in a way that that were supreme is what he's calling us away from. And we tend to do that, right? We, we tend to pursue those things ultimately. I mean, it's not much of our life centered around how we can get more and get stuff and make it work. It's part of what we do. God knows that. It's part of the way the world works. He, he understands the world in which we live. He just comes to us in love and says, my beloved, be careful with these things. I made them for you to enjoy, not for you to treasure. There is another kind of treasure I'm telling you about. He knew the danger of these things. That's why he said to his people in the very beginning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Don't have another God before me. They will take you back into slavery. Money and stuff can become to us like Gollum's ring, right? Remember Gollum? Now, how weird was Gollum about this ring? I mean, he was really weird about this ring. And remember in one of, the, I can't, one of the movies, there's this flashback and you find out how Schmeagel became Gollum, right? And like he was a pretty, he was a little ugly, but he was a fairly normal guy <laughs> until he like found the ring, right? And then it just like took over his life. And it had this enslaving, uglifying, horrific effect in his life. It was a treasure to be sure. But when he treasured it, it began to ruin him. It became to him something he could not do without, right? When he lost it, he was coming undone. That is evidence that it had become his master. It was his focus. Had his attention. Source of his security and his joy. And that in his life, created real darkness. How dark is that darkness? The horror of idolatry. I mean, you think of John D. Rockefeller, who started Standard Oil in 1870, and he became one of the richest men that ever was. And someone once asked him, hey, dude, you have so much money. How much is enough? And he said, just a little more. Remember that? Just a little more. Why? Because idols by design can never satisfy. An idol is that thing from which we never get enough. And Proverbs tells us that they aren't fleeting. I love, I love I, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. How simple is the Bible? How clear is the Bible? <laughs> Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. You see, that was Gollum's problem. He didn't know when to quit. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. And Jesus is trying to save us from the heartache that comes from mis placed affections. And so at the end there, he pushes us. He pushes us into a corner of decision. And he says in the last verse, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He pushes us into a corner. 
and says, okay, listen, you have to make a decision. Right, just like Israel was called to a decision on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and Elijah the prophet there. Choose this day whom you will serve. If God is God, then serve him. And Jesus says, I know what money is like in your heart. Mammon means money, wealth, possessions. I know what these things do to you, Brent. But you cannot serve them and me. Literally, the idea of the text is it's impossible to serve mammon and God. Choose this day whom you will serve, Jesus is saying to us. And what the text does with that word mammon, if you have the NIV, it's translated money, but the the word is mammon is it personifies it here, right? It sets it up against God as though it were another person. And it personifies it so that we might get the sense that this thing has real teeth and claws, The pull, the drag, the bite, the spiritual force pulling in our spirits of money when we put it too high is somehow very real. Cool word that comes out of this text is mammonolatry. Got that? Mammonolatry, the idolatry of mammon. Here we'll define it for you. This sin may be defined by the spirit of grasping greed and acquisitiveness always acquiring acquisitiveness. The insatiable longing for more of material possessions and a consequent lack, consequent lack of contentment and absence of trust in God our Father who has promised to supply all things to his children. I didn't realize how big of a problem I had with mammonolatry until I got Amazon. Because <laughs> I hate going to stores. Any store, I hate it. I don't even like leaving my house. Unless I'm going surfing or here. I, and so I, you know, I just, I want to go to stores. I'm just, I'm just not getting, I hate stores. So in my heart, it would seem like, nah, I don't need any stuff, no problem. But when the store came to me, and it was every store in the world, I realized how real mammonolatry is for me. And then you know what they did? They added the one-click button. Have you signed up for one click? Dana, you know what I'm talking about? The one click button. The one click button is designed to give you enough time not to think about the Bible or God or this sermon before you buy it. <laughs> right? Like, wait, I don't have to enter my address because that's where I might have second thoughts. I don't have to like pull out my credit card ever again and enter in the security code or any of the numbers or anything. You all already have it if I just one click. And I find myself living in this tension of serving two masters, God and mammon. And in his love, God is saying to me, you cannot do that. That is an untenable situation. It is not possible. In my heart and in my mind, I'm thinking about how can I get more mammon but still be faithful to God? And God is saying simply, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness 
And all these other things will be added unto you. It's not saying that we cannot pursue these things. He's saying do not treasure these things. They will disappoint you. So how do we know, besides Amazon, if we're serving mammon and are too concerned with treasure on earth? I end with a couple questions, introspective sort of questions. Ask this of yourself. I've been asking these of myself. Ask this of yourself. Are you able to give away large sums of money? No strings attached. Or something of great value. When was the last time you wrote a check to someone in generosity that hurt? Because it's one thing if you have $10 and you give $1, whoopee. But if you have $10 and you give $9, are you able to give away large sums of money joyfully? It's a litmus test. Have you written a check or given something away that hurt a little? If not, then you might have a problem with mammon. Here's another question. Do you give or practice generosity regularly? Is generosity a rhythm and a principle, and a value in your life so that you give to something, to someone on a regular basis. If not, then you have a problem with mammon. There should be this thing in our lives as followers of Jesus where we want to practice generosity and so it becomes a rhythm and a regular thing in our lives. If that's not there, we have a problem with mammon. Final question. Do you make decisions in life based primarily on money? If you do, as I have, then you have a problem with mammon because mammon has become the master, the supreme controller, the supreme logic with which you are filtering and processing your life. That's mammonolatry when we make decisions based primarily on money. Because that's not the controlling logic of the Christian's life. That's not the supreme controller. It's not the master. We have a different truth and a different person, Jesus, according to whom we filter and process and direct our lives. My wife and I remind each other of this frequently because all these temptations are real to us. We remind each other frequently that every decision we've ever made based on money, we've regretted. And we're just in it for the money. I haven't lived long, but I've lived long enough to know that. And so with those questions, maybe Jesus is lovingly confronting some of our mammon issues, our idol issues. And what does God say to his people throughout the scriptures when he discovers idols in their midst? You know what he says? Tear them down. Just tear them down. He doesn't say, listen, here's this idol. It doesn't look real good here in the living room. Let's just like throw a towel over it and put it in the back room and tuck it away, but in the closet there. He says, destroy it, tear it down. Burn it, grind it up, throw it in a river, wash it away. So how can we tear down our little idols in our heart this week. Maybe, maybe give to someone this week extravagantly. 
Give to someone or something this week generously. Write a check that hurts. Or don't write it, but get to the place where you at least experience it. Feel that tension of Jesus saying you can't serve God and mammon. Feel the tension of two masters pulling on you. Don't write a check to this church. Because I don't want you to think this is a cheap ploy for money. Don't write a check this week to this church. Send it somewhere else. Or don't. Just sit in the tension and ask God, why can I not write this check? I have found that for me, it is connected with a previous text of fasting, of denying the flesh, of telling my fleshly self, you don't always get what you want, and I always want what I want. My precious. And so this week, ask Jesus about your decisions. Let Jesus become for you this week a financial advisor. Just ask him. He's your supreme controller. He's your master. He's your God who loves you. He's not a taker. He's a giver. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his namesake and for your good. Let him be your financial advisor this week. Talk with God about these things. And all the while that you are doing it, remember this truth. Scripture presents to us Jesus as the ultimate treasure. He's the pearl of greatest price. He is the only one who will never leave us or forsake us. In him and only in him were we made to ever find satisfaction. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. Only in Jesus. And the harder we go after Jesus the more mammon falls and is put in its right place. Amen? Thank you, Lord. I thank for what you've told us today. Thank you that you love us. You care for us deeply. You care enough to talk to us about our money and our stuff. Holy Spirit, lead us gently in paths of righteousness for the glory of Christ. Holy Spirit, help us to believe that Jesus is better than anything else. We want to be able to say like the psalmist, Oh Lord, your love is better than life. Teach us to feast on the person of Christ who is the bread of life. Lead us in how we can be satisfied in God's love. Thank you for the riches that we do have. Thank you for the riches that we will have. Thank you for times of plenty and times of want. Teach us the secret of contentment. That in you, we have all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.